Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn Dwyer. And this is episode 17, The Return of the O'Briens. Back in episode 14, the last show on medieval Ireland, we looked at the life of the remarkable King of Leinster, Diarmid Machmuel Namo, and how he forced his way into a position of power. Today we continue our journey through medieval Ireland in the 11th century, following the return to power of Brian Baru's descendants, who all bore his name in their surname, O'Brien. Their return to power sparked what became a real-life Game of Thrones between the kings of the five medieval provinces of Ireland, Munster, Leinster, Meath, Ulster and Connacht. The final years of the life of Diarmid Mach Mo, that great king of Leinster, were difficult. From comparatively humble origins, the ageing king Diarmid had transformed his family fortunes, rising to one of the most powerful kings in Ireland in the early 11th century. At his height, he could make or break other kings, most famously illustrated when he installed Thurlock O'Brien as king of Munster in 1064. But in 1070, things had declined rapidly. His son Murkud, the man Dermot had been grooming as his successor, died in Dublin. A year later, tragedy struck again when another of his sons, Glunearing, was killed in battle north of Dublin. While he did have other children, Murkath and Glunearing were clearly his favourites and in their absence he was politically isolated. Vulnerable and ageing, a crisis loomed for Dermot as there was no clear heir to succeed him. Predictably, the domestic dispute of a generation broke out as Diarmid's relatives began jockeying for position. And in 1071, his brother, Donald, and his grandsons went to war, aiming to position themselves to succeed Diarmid. All the king himself could do was watch as his relations squabbled. He himself was powerless to act. And in the end, he had to endure the ignominy of calling on his ally, Thurlock O'Brien, the king of Munster, who he had installed in 1064, to intervene on his behalf. Thurlock was more than happy to act and he thundered into Leinster, taking hostages from the various factions and handed them over to Diarmid, re-establishing his authority. As Thurlock handed the hostages to Diarmid though, the power shift was evident for all to see. Like sand in an hourglass, the position of Ireland's most powerful king was clearly ebbing from Diarmid in Leinster to Thurlock in Munster. Ironically, it had been Diarmid who had raised Thurlock up. 
he had supported him against his uncle Donica and installed him as king of Munster in 1064. But how the tables had turned. In the short term, in 1071, while Dermot may have been grateful he had such a powerful ally to call upon, he also must have known Thurlock was not doing this out of the goodness of his heart. Indeed, Thurlock himself was looking to the future. He too was jockeying for position and looking to a world without Dermot, one he wished to dominate. Thurlock would not have to wait long to cash in on helping Dermot stay in power. On February the 7th, 1072, the ageing king went on campaign in Meath, no doubt hoping to re-establish himself. However, his time was up, and at the Battle of Odba, Dermot was killed. In the fast-changing world of medieval Ireland, there was little time for sentimentality or mourning over his death. There was power up for grabs. While some of his family would unquestionably succeed Dermot as King of Leinster, Thurlock O'Brien was thinking of the bigger picture and who would be the most powerful king on the island now that Dermot was dead. For Thurlock, he needed to act quickly to establish his authority. Wasting no time, he gathered an army and moved east, invading southern Leinster, Dermot's home territory. Despite being Dermot's ally, he ransacked the land, burned crops and took cattle. Dermot's brother Donal, known as Donal the Fat, had emerged as the family patriarch, but was in no position to resist Thurlock. Indeed, he had to hand over his sons as hostages to ensure his loyalty and subordination. Thurlock had got off to a great start, and next he moved north to the all-important settlement of Dublin. With its close contacts across the Irish Sea, the city provided its ruler with wealth and, importantly, access to a growing region around the Irish Sea, which included the Isle of Man, a strategically important island between Ireland and Britain. Arriving at the city of Dublin, he faced no opposition, and the city rulers too submitted to him. When he returned to his home in Thomond, in the north of the Kingdom of Munster, he finished a year of consolidation by eliminating internal opposition by blinding his kinsman, Cunning, thereby removing any aspirations he may have had on power. By the end of 1072, Thurlock must have been very satisfied. He had handled the transition of power after Dermot's death very well. Of course, outside Munster, there were still many who had not submitted to him but they were unlikely to put up much of a fight. The Kingdom of Meath, north of Dublin, could be troublesome, but its rulers were now a pale shadow of their ancestors who had once been high kings. Meanwhile, in the west, the Kingdom of Connacht was internally divided between the O'Connors, the O'Rourkes and the O'Flaherty's, each vying for control, but none able to emerge dominant. Finally, in Ulster, the great power of the north, the Canal Owen, who provided numerous high kings, were at their lowest ebb since emerging as a major power in the 8th century. The two branches of the family, the McLaughlins and the O'Neills, were tearing each other apart, battling for control in a struggle that would last three decades. It was clear that surrounded by divided kingdoms, Thurlock would quickly mop up opposition. In 1073, Thurlock attacked Meath, taking advantage of internal conflict. He was able to bring them to heel, easily leaving him enough time that year to cross the Shannon into Connacht, where he took hostages. Arriving back in Thomond, 
Turlock had huge wealth and one of the most bizarre war trophies, the head of the former King of Meath who had been killed by his own kingsmen. While seeming strange, presumably Turlock's possession of the head symbolised his dominance over Meath. But on this occasion, carrying around the dead man's head had serious implications for Turlock. According to the annals of the Four Masters, when the head was presented to him, a mouse emerged and bit him. He contracted an unknown illness which made his hair fall out, and although he did survive, he never truly recovered from this bizarre incident. While Thurlock struggled with this mysterious illness, his armies were busy expanding his power. Having taken Dublin in 1072, they now had access to the trading and political allies of the city, and in particular, the Isle of Man. The relationship between Dublin and the Isle of Man during this period was particularly close, and the rulers of each region looked to dominate the other. This will explain how some of Thurlock's kinsmen died fighting in the Isle of Man in 1073. Now, despite his sickness, Thurlock can only have been content. To say Ireland had fallen on his lap might be an overstatement, but some of the most powerful kings in Irish history had spent decades achieving what Thurlock had done in the space of one year. Thurlock himself was clearly talented, but he'd also benefited from the fact that he had emerged in an era when the other kingdoms around him were internally very divided. However, while Thurlock had an easier rise to power in Ireland, he did have to deal with a new issue the great high kings of the past would not have understood. That is, the Normans. In 1066, the Normans from northern France had invaded England. In Ireland, Dermot MacMuel Namo, the most powerful king at the time, had adopted a hostile attitude, supporting the sons of the Anglo-Saxon king Harald. But by Thurlock's reign, things had changed. The Normans were no longer trying to conquer England by the 1070s. By then, they had annihilated all opposition and were unquestionably the rulers from the English Channel in the south to the Welsh borders to Scotland in the north. They had established a new power in the Irish Sea region and as Thurlock's influence and power grew through his connections in Dublin, he now had to decide how he would deal with the new reality of Norman England. Now while the eminent historian Sean Duffy has argued Thurlock had an adversarial relationship with the Normans, Benjamin Hudson has pointed out that this may not have been the case. This can be seen in 1075 when a group of Norman and Danish earls in England rose up against the Norman king, William the Conqueror. Although details are scant, it is unusual that these rebels were dependent on support arriving from Denmark, given that Ireland, and in particular Dublin, was frequently a source of mercenaries across Britain. The plot thickens when in 1075 we also find Thurlock deposing the Norse king of Dublin, Godfrey, and by the end of the year, installing his own son, Murkathok, as king of the city. Benjamin Hudson has convincingly argued that this may have been because the Norse in Dublin were readying themselves for intervention in the revolt in England, something that would not have gone down well with William the Conqueror. We should not assume that during this period it was fear of a Norman invasion that would have made Thurlock react in such a manner. During this period, trade between the ports of Waterford and Dublin and ports in England, such as Bristol, grew. In this context, the Viking king of Dublin, Godfrey's desire to go to war on a whim in England, could have been disastrous. Indeed, it's likely he was more worried that such an intervention 
would affect his trading relationship with William. Thurlock seems to have had an all-round positive relationship with the Normans, which was illustrated through his frequent contact with Lanfranc, the Archbishop of Canterbury, and close aid of William the Conqueror. By the late 1070s, Thurlock had unquestionably emerged as the most powerful monarch in Ireland. However, by the end of the decade, murmurings of a serious revolt were emanating from the Kingdom of Connacht. Next we will head across to Shannon and see the rise of the Kingdom of Connacht. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. The province and corresponding early medieval kingdom of Connacht was among the most remote places in medieval Ireland. Generally speaking, Connacht is compromised of all land to the west of the River Shannon, except County Clare. In the medieval period, the kings of Connacht had long been subordinate to the kings of Munster or the O'Neills in the north, but by the 11th century they were beginning to emerge as a power in their own right. And this presented a major threat to Turlock. Despite their rise in power, Turlock had been able to use divisions in Connacht between the powerful families of the O'Connors, the O'Flaherty's and the O'Rourke's in the province to neuter opposition. But this was always an uphill battle given their constant squabbling. In 1079, A. O'Flaherty was killed by Rory O'Connor. Turlock needed to react to stop Rory rising to power. In a preemptive move on his part, he invaded Connacht and expelled Rory O'Connor from the province. However, this in turn cleared the path for the rise of the O'Rourke's, and by the early 1080s, Turlock had failed to stop the rise of Dunnaca O'Rourke, and in 1084, Dunnaca cast aside centuries of history that had seen his family, and indeed the wider Connacht region, play second fiddle to Munster and Ulster. He led his army into the east of Ireland to attack Leinster, hoping to prize the kingdom from Turlock's dominance, thereby establishing himself as a major power. As he moved across the Shannon, he turned south to the River Liffey, which in the medieval period formed the northern border of Leinster. They crossed the Liffey at the settlement of Leakslip, which had been founded centuries earlier by the Norse Vikings. It was here that those same Norse, led by Citric Caeach, had gone a long way to establishing the Vikings as a permanent presence in Dublin when they had defeated the King of Leinster in 917. Politics, though, in Ireland had changed much in the following century and a half, and now in 1084, Donica O'Rourke was hoping to emulate an equally seismic shift by bringing Connacht centre stage in Gaelic Ireland. At Leakslip, 
Donegal O'Rourke based down Scandinavians who were fighting for their Gaelic overlord Turlock, alongside his army drawn from Munster and Leinster. Turlock did not lead the army. He was well into his 70s at this stage and in poor health. This honour fell to his son Morkathach, who had been the King of Dublin for nearly a decade and acting overlord of Leinster. While the power of Connacht was unquestionably rising, Donacha still was no match for such a force, and as the red mist of blood and broken bone descended over Leakslip, his army was routed and Donacha was killed. If death wasn't enough, Donacha had to suffer further humiliation, and he was decapitated and his head taken to Thurloch at Limerick as a trophy of war. One would think Turlock would have learned from his experience with the mouse 11 years earlier when he'd been struck down when presented with another defeated king's head. Indeed, this bizarre illness he had contracted from the head of the King of Meath in 1073 haunted him for the rest of his life. By 1086, the 77-year-old Turlock was in the throes of death as the illness returned. Finally, on the day before the Eids of July, the 14th of the month, he died. The annals of the four masters tell us that he never really recovered from that bizarre illness he contracted in 1073. Turlock O'Brien had been an impressive king. During his rule, Ireland had been relatively peaceful. He had been able to benefit from the fact that the surrounding kingdoms were weak and divided. During his reign, the only major challenge was that of Dunnacha O'Rourke from Connacht, which his son Workatuck the King of Dublin, had dealt with easily. I use the term relatively peaceful because people who lived in Ulster knew nothing of the stability of Turlock's reign. The province was ravaged by war during these years. The traditional power of the north, the Canal Owen, were unable to establish control as they were divided by a civil war. Other powers in the province, particularly the Ullad in East Ulster, had attempted to take advantage of this situation. It was not until 1084, after 30 years of chaos, that Donald McLaughlin finally rose to power among the Canal Owen and began establishing stability. Nonetheless, during Turlock's reign, the province had not known peace. However, after Turlock's death, this lack of peace would become infectious as a fierce struggle soon opened up to succeed him. In the post-Turlock world, there was little doubt who was the front-runner to succeed him. His son, Workatoch, had ruled Dublin since 1075 and had established himself as de facto overlord of the province of Leinster. Unfortunately for Workatoch, many in his family, and indeed rival kings across Ireland, were unwilling to accept his rule. While his brother Tyg died four weeks after his father, Morkathok was immediately opposed as king by his other brother, Diarmid, and his dead brother, Tyg's sons. In what was an unusual moment of humanity in medieval Ireland, Morkathok did not kill his brother, who had challenged him. Instead, he exiled him from Munster to rule the Viking city of Waterford. But this ability to ruthlessly deal with Diarmid would haunt Morkathok for the rest of his life. While he was attempting to control his family, Kingdoms across Ireland, dominated by Morkathok's father, Turlock, now saw their chance to break free from the domination of the kings of Munster. In 1086, in the aftermath of Turlock's death, the king of Meath, Mwil Shocknell, led an invasion of Dublin and Leinster. In this act, 
he was declaring himself independent by attempting to dominate another kingdom which had submitted to Turlough. Now way back in the 9th and 10th century, the Kingdom of Mead had provided several high kings and Dublin and Leinster had once been in their sphere of influence. But times had changed, however. And the new king of Mead, Mwelsochnel, learned this in a bloody lesson when he was repelled from Leinster at the Battle of Brachacrinoch. Having defeated Mead, the king of Leinster now formed an alliance with Mwelsochnel's exiled brother Diarmid, based in the port of Waterford. In 1087 they launched an audacious attack. Ground forces from Leinster attacked eastern Munster while Diarmid led a marine assault landing in Wurkathuk's rear in the southwest. However, they underestimated the young king's power and he was able to defeat both armies. Nevertheless, the fabric that had bound Thurloch O'Brien's kingdom together was beginning to unravel for his son. To his north, Wurkathuk could see a storm brewing in Connacht. In 1086, while several conflicts raged across Ireland and Wurkathuk was distracted, the situation in Connacht altered decisively. On the battlefield, Rory O'Connor killed A.O. Rourke and established the dominance of the O'Connors in the province for the coming decade. Wurkatuk had to act, but the situation was complicated. Unquestionably, the rise of the O'Connors was the greatest threat to his power, but his sister Moore had married Rory O'Connor, while Wurkatuk himself had married Duclavig, the sister of Rory. This obviously added an extra dimension to Murkathuk's deliberations on what to do, and he simply didn't act in 1086. However, across Ireland, people must have feared the worst in 1087, when disaster struck, when both Moore and Doveclawbig died. These deaths transformed the situation. The shackles were off. Murkathuk now began to plan what was going to become an enormous naval invasion of Connacht. The strategy was bold. He was planning to catch the O'Connors in a giant pincer movement. One force would sail up the Shannon River, which formed the eastern border of Connacht. Meanwhile, over a hundred miles to the west, another force would take to the Atlantic Ocean, sailing up the west coast of Ireland and a land on O'Connor's western flank. In planning this attack, Murkatuk must have known this would be one of the largest and strategically most complicated attacks in Irish history. Just think of the logistics of how this would work. There was no way the two armies could keep in contact once they left Munster. Should any calamity befall one army, the other would not know. These dangers aside, Murkatuk pressed on. He was under pressure. He needed to forcibly bring Connacht down a notch or two. However, he was facing a very serious foe in Rory, who was anticipating Murkatuk's attack. Now Rory himself didn't have a strong fleet. This was a hangover from the fact that the Vikings had never established a major trading port on the isolated west coast. So rather than challenge Murkathuk on the river, a fight he would almost certainly lose, Rory adopted a clever, innovative, defensive strategy. As the Shannon meanders across the plains of the Midlands on the Tipperary Offaly border near the town of Banagher, the river divides into narrow channels either side of Inishirky Island. Here Rory decided he would make his stand. He occupied the island from where he could easily destroy any fleet attempting to move north up the River Shannon. For Murkathuk he had to clear this garrison before he could move forward. But he was at a distinct disadvantage against forces who had much greater mobility on land. 
In an ensuing battle in the narrow channels around Inishirki, Rory emerged victorious. After the defeat, in an age of limited communication, a very serious situation developed from Murkertach. As the eastern arm of his pincer attacking Connacht had been cut down, the western fleet on the Atlantic Ocean sailed in what was a suicidal mission, oblivious of what had just happened on the Shannon. The outcome was predictable, and this fleet disappeared into the west, never to return. Murkertach had gone for broke and had lost. He was now ruling a defenceless kingdom, and Rory O'Connor was not willing to allow this chance to pass him by. That summer, in 1088, the people of Munster endured three devastating raids led by Rory's forces. The annals of the Four Masters illustrate just how thorough these raids were. In the line, it is wonderful if he left any cattle or people. Wounded and defenceless, the scavengers of medieval Ireland, in the shape of Vikings from Dublin and Waterford, formed an alliance and began to circle around the wounded corpse of Murkertuk's kingdom. They would never have been able to overcome the kingdom when Turlock had been at his height, but now Munster seemed vulnerable and they struck. In a sign of just how far the power of the Vikings had declined, they were repelled after a landing in Cork. However, this was little consolation from Murkertuk. Things were about to get dramatically worse. In the uncertainty after his father's death, the political situation was in a state of constant flux and now he faced what must have seemed like a ghost from the past when the Northern O'Neills emerged resurgent after 30 years of internal warfare. Next we'll see the O'Neills enter the fray. By 1088, while Munster was being annihilated, Donald McLaughlin had finally established control over the Canal Owen and the wider Northern O'Neills in Western and Mid-Ulster. After a 30-year hiatus, while they had squabbled amongst themselves, the Northern O'Neill now began to look to enter the Game of Thrones that was tearing 11th century Ireland apart. And by late 1088, Donald McLaughlin saw his chance to intervene. After Rory O'Connor wore himself out by annihilating Murkertach in Munster, Donal moved. He swept south into Connacht from Ulster, where Rory did not, indeed most likely could not, offer opposition. Instead, he submitted to Donal and then joined his hosting as it moved on towards Munster. By this stage, Munster was a wasteland, having been ravaged by Rory already three times in that summer. Nonetheless, Donal plundered his way through the north of the province, burning the city of Limerick before turning towards the O'Brien's fortress at Kincora. Teaching Murkertach a stark lesson, he raised this fortress where the O'Briens had based themselves for years. While Murkertach did not immediately submit to Donal, it was only a matter of time. His dreams of following in his father's footsteps would have to wait. He had been utterly vanquished. In the course of 1088, he had gambled everything on the massive naval invasion of Connacht. When this failed, he was defenceless, and everyone below him in the power structure queued up to have a go. Miraculously, he was able to maintain his power internally, and even continued to have some control over Leinster. In 1089, he even attempted to gain vengeance on the King of Connacht, Rory O'Connor. 
this was extremely risky, as an attack on Rory would not only invoke the wrath of Rory, but also Donald McLaughlin, who was Rory's overlord. Nonetheless, Morkatuck pressed ahead with a plan slightly more modest than 1088. This time, it was simple. He would sail up the Shannon again and raid and loot settlements on the riverbank, undermining Rory's authority. This raid started well, indeed far better, than the previous year's attempted attack. Murkertuck led his fleet unopposed as far as Lochree, a large lake in the Midlands. From there they raided several monastic sites in Rory's kingdom, before turning south to sail back down to Munster. Murkertuck can only have been satisfied, having struck back at Rory and carried away a lot of loot and wealth, and he'd suffered few losses. However, as they sailed south, this satisfaction began to ebb away. As they arrived at the narrow channels around Inishirky, where Rory had blocked them the previous year, they now found the same situation again. Only a few months previously they had been annihilated around this island, and there was no way they were going to allow this to happen again. Their only option, though, was to turn around and head back up the river towards Lockery. As Murkertuck sailed north, presumably hoping to draw Rory after him, his blood ran cold as he arrived at a shallow point used as a crossing at Atlone. This had been occupied by Donal Uamuel Shocknell, the son of the King of Meath. Murkertuck was now trapped in a hopeless position on a 20 kilometre section of the River Shannon between Atlone and Inishirky. There was no hope of escape and Murkertuck had to surrender his fleet in the most humiliating fashion and submit to Donal Uamuel Shocknell. He was then escorted back to Munster under Donald's protection. This must have been utterly humiliating. Defeated and embarrassed, he arrives back in Munster, but now Murkertuck must have known he was in very serious trouble. He would not be able to even defend himself now that he had lost his fleet. Again he had gambled, incurring the wrath of Rory and his overlord Donald, and had lost. Just like the previous year, Donal and Rory now began sharpening their swords, assembling a large army, getting ready to strike back in vengeance. Since Murkertuck's fleet was annihilated, they could even sail down the Shannon unmolested now. Again they raided Thomond and destroyed the area of North Munster, taking everything of value. According to the annals of the Four Masters, it was so thorough so that they scarcely left a single head of cattle so far as they penetrated and besides carried off captives. Now one would think at this stage Murkertuck would give in, but given he lived in such a chaotic world, he did manage to hang on to power. While Murkertuck was struggling, many of his enemies were distracted by numerous smaller wars that raged across Ireland. The King of Meath, for example, raided territories in the North Midlands. Further south, the King of Leinster was locked in a ferocious battle, ongoing with the O'Connor's folly of the Midlands. That's a separate branch of the family to the O'Connor's in Connacht. It was clear Ireland was just breaking out into a war of all against all and in this scenario, Murkertuck was able to survive. However, by 1090, Donald MacLachlan was emerging as the most powerful king. In the early 1080s, he had survived what was a cauldron of violence in the internal struggles of Ulster. He had grown up through a civil war of the O'Neills and had shown himself the best strategist on the island. He had waited for Murkertuck and Rory to wear each other out and then he had struck, establishing his power. By 1090, 
The only major force holding out against him was Murkathok and Munster. But Donald had annihilated him on several occasions. And if he pressed the issue, there would be only one outcome. So at a royal meeting in 1090, attended by Murkathok, Rory, the King of Connacht, Flan, the King of Meath, they all acknowledged Donald MacLachlan, the King of the North, as the most powerful king. While the annals of the four masters said the kings parted in peace and tranquillity, there was no hope for the future. Donald either lacked the willingness or the interest or the power maybe to enforce peace across the island. As we shall see next time, Donald was heading up a very shaky house of cards, one that would quickly collapse into another round of war and violence. Until next time, Slán. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Are you a reality TV junkie? Do you ever think, dang, I wish I had someone to talk to about all the trash TV that I watch? Well, look no further, garbage lover, because Reality Gaze is a podcast for you. Hello, I'm Maddie. And I'm Poodle, and we're the Reality Gaze. We talk about all your favorite unscripted shows like The Golden Bachelor, Love is Blind, and TLC's big, messy behemoth, 90 Day Fiancé. And if you're driving to work, folding laundry, or just pretending to listen to your husband talk about sports, just put on the pod, and you've instantly got two gay besties spilling all the tea and reading these people for filth. So come at us, y'all. Find Reality Gaze wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com